Welcome to Caught. Welcome to Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We're back from the all-star break and games have been crazy. All these teams are powering through for the second half of the season, got some rest, were able to kick their feet up, and now we're back. So let's recap all-star weekend and then let's get into it. So to start, the team of the Cavaliers won the new format of the skills challenge with Evan Mobley sinking it from virtually everywhere during that challenge. what do you think of the new format? To be honest with you, I really don't like the new format all that much. I really think that the skills challenge should be the sort of thing where it's an individual accolade. I just think that it sounds weird. Like it even sounds weird to say it like, oh, who won the skills challenge? Team Cavs. Like that's just strange. Like it makes the event I feel like when you make it like that, it's kind of like that shared responsibility thing that people have, where since everybody's equally contributing, no one really feels as invested. So I feel like it means less to win the award now. I don't think that people are going to be, you know, caring as much to win it because it's not really an individual accolade. It's like more of a formality. And I, honestly, even the selection of the teams was um, a little bit strange. I didn't think that the skills challenge necessarily featured the most skilled players in the NBA the way that it normally does. I think instead they were thinking, all right, what would be like a good story for, you know, all-star weekend in Cleveland. And although the team Cavs are deserving winners, they obviously performed admirably. And I think that they're obviously deserving and they showed their, their young players are obviously very talented and skilled guys to have big men that can do all the things that they can do. But would I say that Team Cavs would have been the most skilled players in the whole league? I really don't think so. I think that that was more so let's put Team Cavs on because we're having this event in Cleveland. So in the future, I think that I would have preferred to see an individual competition where the only considerations in the event are the top skilled players because that's what the event is about. So that's just me, though. I mostly agree with you. I think that the teams were fine, but I think that overall, I do also prefer the uh, the, the individual format. Um, I, I think what happens with these competitions, and we'll get into the dunk contest in a minute, but a lot of people will tune in and it'll be great one year because they have all the stars out for the skills competition or they have all the stars out for the three-point competition, which has been the more favorable competition as of late and then they'll get duds from the other two competitions and so then their immediate thought is we got to change this up make it better for next year you saw them change the rising stars format and then they just see what sticks what works and so obviously the all-star game has changed a lot over the last 10 years going from it being just from the conferences raw total score to now having them do a little fantasy draft between the two players with the highest vote totals, as well as now implementing the Kobe Bryant uh, rule for the last quarter where whatever teams has the highest point total, the final point score is 24 points higher than that. Um, I think it's interesting to keep things fresh. I think that they fall flat on their face sometimes when they try to do that. And I think this was an example of one of them. So 
I expect them to go back to individual challenge eventually. Maybe next year they try this one more time. But I think for now, um, it's just them trying to see what sticks. Yeah, I agree. Definitely not one of the ones that um, panned out. I do like the way that the Kobe Bryant rule was implemented. But as you mentioned, they're not always successful. But moving on to the dunk contest, what did you make of that dunk contest? Dude, that was terrible. That was one of the worst dunk contests that I've seen in a while. Um, the worst. It, yeah, it was. Uh, if they're going to field those types of players, like they should just cancel the dunk contest. And it afterwards, Dwayne Wade rated the whole contest a six, which was hilarious. <laughs> but it. <laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't have the same flair. I think guys are too focused on what little things am I going to do outside of the dunk to make it cool or innovative rather than like actually having cool dunks. And this is only two or three years removed from Aaron Gordon showdowns with Zach Levine and Derek Jones Jr. But even when you looked at the talent that was going into the dunk contest, it just didn't seem like it was going to be a strong field from the start. Obi Topin did a couple of things last year. Maybe he could be good, which, yeah, he did win the contest, but, like, it's it's really not winning much after winning that. And Jalen Green has had some monstrous slams during the contest, but he didn't put up anything reasonable. Cole Anthony tried to dunk in Timberlands, which, who cares? And that only means something to people in New York, Cole Anthony. No one cares that you're dunking in Tim's outside of the state of New York. And you weren't even in the all-star game in New York. Like it would have been cooler if you had had Tim's on with Timbaland there, giving him the ball to dunk and, while and he in New York. over Timbaland. Yeah, that would have been exactly. That would have been actually like this one. He should have had, he should have signed a loan for a house from Dan Gilbert while dunking the ball over again, Dan Gilbert for the Quicken Loans Arena, if that's what he, <laughs> if that's what he wanted to do, but he didn't. So I just don't, it, it was not a good contest. Like you said, I think it was too much ancillary crap on the outside. And this is the type of contest that we just talked about them changing formats. This is the type of contest that next year they'd be like, let's change the format to be teams of four, where the team of four who eliminates the other team of four then becomes teams of two. And then that team eliminates the other teams of two. And then those two players go head to head. And it's like, you're changing the format for no reason. I think if anything, (laughs) the way that they should change the format is have 10 players in the field and they're only allowed to dunk once. And if they mess up that dunk, they get no redos instead of getting three redos per dunk. So you know that those people have to throw down. And then after that, you have four players who then get two dunks each and then two players who get three dunks each. That way you have more competition and players have to bring their best stuff. Yeah, I I agree. Anything would be more fun than what happened this year. Again, I think it's just them trying too much to entertain outside things besides what the contest is about. They wanted to basically establish young players in this competition they're trying to introduce people that are watching all-star weekend to these new young guys to potentially establish some new household names for the future but outside of that these guys aren't actually legitimately the best dunkers in the league i don't think anybody would call any of these three guys one of the best five dunkers in the nba and i think that the main difference between this dunk contest and the successful ones in years past is that in years past the exciting dunk contest 
they're picking guys who are actually great dunkers. Like Aaron Gordon may not be an all-star player, but everyone knew that he actually was an incredible dunker. Zach Levine, incredible dunker. Derek Jones Jr., great dunker. Everybody knew these guys were established at dunking the ball. These guys, I didn't even know that Cole Anthony could dunk, to be honest with you. So, I mean, I knew from the moment that I saw the, the lineup, the names, that it was going to be a dud. And the NBA should have known that. I think if the NBA wants All-Star Weekend to be a success, what they have to do, instead of trying to worry about what they think is going to drive the most ratings now and in the future, they have to go back to just selecting the best participants for what each event is about. If you're having a dunk contest, put in the best dunkers. Three-point shootout, put in the best three-point shooters. Simple. Yeah, it they and like the NBA should have forced their hand. Like it if Zion Williamson comes back and we'll get back to him later on in the show. But if he comes back next year and is performing well, he needs to be in the dunk contest. John Morant needs to be in the dunk contest. Like um Bridges from Charlotte needs to be in the dunk contest. The, like the players who you know, like you said, who are going to throw down and make it as entertaining as Vince Carter, Jason Richardson, Dwight Howard, Nate Robinson. Like those are the people that need to be in it, not straps who might be out of the league in three years. I think what the league needs to do is if they're having an issue with players not wanting to compete in the dunk contest, it's probably because maybe they think the dunk contest doesn't have enough incentive given, I guess, the pressure. Maybe the league needs to incentivize it. $2 million Gigi Bryant charity award that goes to whatever winner's charity of choice. Not exactly. Something like that. Make some incentive out of it, put some stakes on it and you think you'll get better participation from the players. If you do that. Yeah. Well, for uh, the next part, cat won the three point contest. He shot lights out, Uh, sets a record with 29 makes. what do you think of the big man in the game? I think that he, with this game, can now officially make the claim that he is the best big man shooter of all time. I think that he really can. And I know that some of you are probably going to be like, how can you say that? I know that he just set an NBA record for most three-pointers made in a three-point shootout, but he's still not the best big man shooter because Dirk Nowitzki. Look, Dirk Nowitzki obviously was a very, very great shooter. But if we're talking about like the three-point shot, not just the fallaway mid-range, we're literally just talking straight up three-point shooting. I think that Carl Anthony Towns actually is a better three-point shooter than Dirk ever was. Dirk never had a season in his career where he made as many three-pointers per game as Carl Anthony Towns is making right now, nor at a higher percentage. So I think that just because we fall in love with the fact that, you know, Dirk Nowitzki won a championship with this fallaway mid-range shot, was a great free throw shooter, had a very nice looking stroke. Carl Anthony Towns, his jump shot doesn't really look that natural. But look, the result is it goes in at a higher rate for him than just about any other big man. So I think that he definitely established himself as the best big man shooter now with that uh, trophy to add to his list. Yeah, and so I think the only thing that we need to consider with Carl Anthony Towns, like, yes, he did put up the highest point total, but they introduced more that money ball rack. They introduced, like, the further shot for four points. They've done all of these things gamifying the three-point contest because it got boring for a couple of years. And 
his 29 points are representative of 40 points total. So people who might be Dirk stands will say that's impossible because Dirk only had 30 points that he could have attained and he got 18 when he won. And so for Carl Anthony Towns, he got 29 out of 40, which was 73% of the total points possible. And Dirk got 60% of the total points possible at 18 out of 30. So I need to look more into which balls Cat made to say, hey, he made this many shots and Dirk made this many shots. But I agree with you in terms of pureness of shot. I think that Cat is likely a better three-point shooter. I think Dirk still might be a better shooter overall just because his fadeaway was so lethal and impossible to guard. But with the new uh, with, with the new individuals in the NBA and the way that the game has shifted and the way that big men have been promoting being able to be guards, essentially, in big men's bodies. I think we talked about this last episode of the episode before. Cat is one of the starters of this new age of basketball. And so is Embiid and so is Jokic. And as the game continues to mature and continue to progress, I think that the onus is going to be on big man who can do it all like they can. And you're going to have better shooters than Cat. So Cat is, I think, to big men what like Steph Curry is to guards, similar to James Harden uh, to guards, where people are emulating their moves and people are emulating their shot selection. And I think that as big men go, they're going to look to Kevin Durant, to Cat, to Giannis, to Embiid, to Jokic on how to play the game to be dominant in today's NBA. Definitely agree with that. That's probably the one event um, of All-Star Weekend outside of the actual All-Star game itself that was worth watching. Yeah, so talk to me about the game. What do you think? Well, the game was obviously pretty incredible. Lots of highlights for you to see everywhere. And Bede had another monster game himself. But I think obviously the story of the game, Stephen Curry getting the All-Star Game MVP, making a record 16 three-pointers. So that would have actually been an NBA record if it had been in a regular season or playoff game. Since it happened in an All-Star game, they're just making it an all-star game, three-point make record. Um, the all-time record for makes currently belonging to Clay Thompson, his teammate at 14. But um, I think that obviously the game was very entertaining. It ended with a turnaround game winner from LeBron James at the end, the kid from Akron, um, putting on a little highlight for the Cleveland crowd. And, I mean, what better story can you really write for a Cleveland all-star game than having two people born in the state of Cleveland win the all-star game MVP and also hit the game winning shot. So I think it was about as good as it could have been for Cleveland. It was, they won the skills challenge. They uh, won the all-star game with LeBron hitting the game winner and, and Steph winning the MVP. And uh, I think it was crazy what Steph was able to do. He wins now the first Kobe Bryant MVP trophy award, which I'm sure it's very special to him, but it was an entertaining game. I'd really like what they did with the format a couple of years back. And it, I think has increased the level of defense and play within the game while also still promoting the fun of it overall. So it's been exciting to see um, overall. And I think the, the game continues to grow. Uh, as, as, and I, I, I think as, as long as they start to try to figure out some of these other pieces, the all-star weekend will be 
what it once was and not turn into the NFL Pro Bowl. Yeah, definitely. I think that this one, like you said, was one of the experiments that did work. I think that some of the changes that they do for All-Star Weekend are great. I would just caution to the NBA not to make changes just for the sake of changes and remember what the point of the actual event is at the end of the day. Yeah, and you know what? Looking at the overall winners, you had the Cavs team win the challenge. You had the uh, LeBron hit the game winner and Steph Curry won the MVP. So both have the Akron uh, connection. Then you have Obi Topin, who went to the University of Dayton, also an Ohio connection. Well, and Pat is the only person who doesn't have that Ohio connection, but he did go to Kentucky and Kentucky is right next to Ohio. So basically they won everything. So good job, Cleveland. You did something right. Finally. <laughs> well, they got to have something to be positive about. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of guards who have been crushing it as of late. And this guy's gotten way too much airtime on our show, but we don't care because DeRozan has been the MVP of the Bulls and honestly should absolutely get MVP votes this season. Zach Levine is back in the lineup, but DeRozan, while he was not, had 10 straight 30-point games, was averaging a ridiculous 34-plus points in those games. He had game winners again. I think he's had three game winners this season. He's leading the Bulls to the second seed in the East after so many thought that they were left for dead after their slew of injuries. And people are talking about him being the current reincarnation of Michael Jordan on the Bulls because he's been that dominant offensively. What do you think of his resurgent year with the Bulls? I mean, this is obviously the best season of DeMar DeRozan's career. Like, without question, you can't say that he has ever had a better year than he's having right now. And he's averaging 28 points per game on the year, which would be fourth in the NBA. And he's also chipping in 5.3 rebounds and five assists. So the guy has been obviously doing it all. But I think the most impressive thing of all the stats is he has been the most efficient that he has ever been in his career in that 10 game span where he was hitting 30 points a game in each game. He also had eight games in a row where he scored 35 points or better on 50% shooting or better, which is something that only Wilt Chamberlain has been able to do before. And he actually broke Wilt Chamberlain's record by two games for that streak. So anytime that you're breaking a Wilt Chamberlain record, you know that you're doing something incredible, especially for a guard to be doing it. So obviously been very efficient. He's shooting 51% on the year. And honestly, I think that the only thing that's holding him back from being the front runner for MVP is the fact that there's other guys in the league right now that are just probably making more of an overall impact on the game than he is. Unfortunately, DeMar DeRozan is still a player that on the defensive side of the ball, I still think leaves a little bit to be desired. And sometimes you see that happen where teams that are strong on the perimeter can exploit the Bulls perimeter players right now because they don't have their best perimeter defenders in Alex Caruso, Patrick Williams. These guys were normally the ones who locked down in the perimeter. 
have now exposed a little bit the facts that DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine are not always the best defenders. A lot of times they still win because their offensive game is so good. I think that DeMar DeRozan has the best mid-range jump shot in the entire NBA right now. He's got more mid-range makes than any other player in the NBA right now. And obviously he should get votes for MVP, but I just don't see him winning it because I think that the guys in front of him in Jokic and Embiid just make an all-around more pronounced impact on the entire game than he does. And as far as an offensive contributor, you can argue that as good as DeMar DeRozan has been, Nikola Jokic shooting 56%, only averaging two points less than him. And then Embiid, same thing. Embiid is another guy who's actually averaging more points than him as a big man and doing it on about the same efficiency. I think that you could probably make the case that he has a bigger impact. So I think he's probably the third leading candidate at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with most of your points. I think the only thing that I don't agree with is that last point you made about third leading candidate. I think Giannis is in the mix there and could win his third MVP as well. Um, Jokic, Embiid, we've talked about them being the top three. And you have to also pay attention to what John Morant's been doing. Uh, he's fifth right now in PER. He just had a 52-point outburst. We'll get to him in a second. And he's leading the Memphis Grizzlies to potentially the third or second seed in the West, depending on if the Warriors falter at all. So John Morant, you cannot ignore what he has been doing this year. He's been on an absolute tear. If he got his shooting percentages up from, I mean, he's hovering around 50% from the field and 35% from three. If he were to get those numbers up and become a little bit more efficient, he'd be the most dangerous guard in the league. And so I think that DeMar DeRozan has been extremely impressive. And you talk about his mid-range game. He's always been known for that. And people think of San Antonio as his dark years. But Pop is known for a mid-range offensive. And DeMar, while he might have been down on those years compared to the years in Toronto, he probably learned a lot within that system and from Pop. And so it's, I don't think, all for lost. I think those years allowed him to become the player that he is now in Chicago with the talent that he has around him that he might not have had yet with the Spurs. So I think that DeMar DeRozan will only continue to grow from here as long as his body holds up. And I don't think he'll have any spitting chance at actual MVP, just given the guys in front of him, but it is impressive what he's done this season. I want though for you to, uh, react and talk about what you've seen from John Morant as of late. Honestly, John Morant lately is making me think that he is probably the best point guard in the NBA right now. And I know that a lot of you are like, oh my God, but Stephen Curry, Stephen Curry. I know Stephen Curry is the best shooter in the whole world. But the thing is, John Morant can do things that Stephen Curry just simply cannot, has never been, and never will be able to do. You can say the same thing about Curry towards Morant, but the thing is, Stephen Curry actually shoots a lower field goal percentage than Russell Westbrook does this season. And we're getting on Russell Westbrook about his low field goal percentage. The other thing too is with Stephen Curry, if I'm drafting him as my you know franchise point guard to build around, I know that as consistent as he is from the perimeter shooting the three-point shot, 
there are going to be some games where your three-point shot just isn't falling. That's happened. He had also the worst shooting slump of his entire career this year. And I think that John Morant will never in his entire career go through a stretch of games for that long where you can keep him down for that long because he is just so versatile in his scoring. He can dominate at all three levels. His speed is game-changing. He knows now how to change his pace, his acceleration, the way he changes gears, the way he just processes and sees the game, I think just puts him at a level that allows him to produce more consistently than other star guards than we've seen in the past. And this is a guy that has scored 40 or better in three of his last four games, setting his career high in points twice, and also setting the franchise record for the Grizzlies with his latest career high of 52 points. So, and he's also a guy who is not at all a defensive liability. Stephen Curry is a guy that teams look for on defense and they try to bully him. This guy is not someone that you're going to be able to do that to. John Moran is a guy that definitely holds his own, is able to switch, has great length, so it allows him to play a little bit above his size and obviously great athleticism, obviously able to play above the rim. So I would say that John Morant right now is better than Derrick Rose or Russell Westbrook literally ever were at any points in their careers. And I know that you're saying, oh my God, those guys, they won MVP. I don't think that the Derrick Rose MVP season is even better than the John Morant season that he's having right now, to be honest with you. Like John Morant's team would be number one in the East and it's only number three right now because the Suns and the Warriors have just been otherworldly. But I don't think that John Morant right now is someone that you can say is worse than peak MVP Rose or peak MVP Westbrook just from the standpoint of at no point in their careers have either one of these guys ever been that efficient at that volume. The best Russell Westbrook ever did from an efficiency standpoint was 47% from the field when he was with the Rockets and he was averaging about 27 points a game that year. But right now, John Morant of right now at 22 years old is averaging more points on a better field goal percentage than Russell Westbrook in his MVP and Derrick Rose in his MVP. He's just as athletic as they are. And he's probably, I think, smarter than either one of them in terms of their basketball IQ. Maybe not necessarily Derrick Rose right now, but in a couple of years, I think that John Morant will easily be considered the better of those three point guards and will end up having the better career as well. Yeah, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And I think if John Morant, we talk about with MVP, there needs to be the narrative. And so as you look to who are those players at the top right now, you have Giannis, whose team is in fifth in the East. You have Embiid, whose team is in third in the East, and you have Jokic, whose team is in sixth in the West. And so John Morant has a leg up on all of them in terms of seeding plus if you look at the win-loss total, even with the 76ers, but six more wins over them. So I think that if he gets the team to be above the Warriors or even above the Suns, if the Suns without Chris Paul, aren't able to maintain the same level of success, there's going to be a lot of clamoring for him to get probably most improved and MVP for the season based off of what he was able to do. So 
we'll see how the rest of the season unfolds and what he's able to do. But I think the Memphis Grizzlies, they have the a lot of exciting young talent. We've talked about Desmond Bain before, but how about Brandon Clark? Eighth in the league right now in player efficiency. He's doing so on 20 minutes a game, has 10 points per game, shooting 64% from the field. And he's contributing to this team that before is the, the, uh, the grit and grind team. And now they're just fast and explosive. And so I think that the trade that they made for Steven Adams was key in their success this year, uh, being able to shed Jonas Valanciunas and get back, I believe, Steven Adams, and they got a better first-round pick out of it as well. Uh, and so Steven Adams recently had, I think, a 20-something rebound game for them and has really provided some defensive energy. So I love what the Grizzlies are doing. I think that John Morant is looking like the Kevin Durant of their draft class with Zion and Zion's looking like Greg Oden right now, but Jaws is special, man. Yeah, I know if he were to win, I mean, obviously I don't think he's going to win MVP, but if he were to somehow win MVP and most improved player in the same year, I think that he may be the first player to have ever done that. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone else doing something as ridiculous sounding as that, but yeah, there are some things serious to be reckoned with Desmond Bain. I think, has been instrumental in taking that team to the next level. And that team definitely is not a team that anyone is looking at as an early exit anymore. I think that everyone, including the teams at the top of the West, are looking at the Grizzlies like a matchup that you got to really prepare for and be serious about because they're not going into any matchup viewing themselves as the underdogs. Like they really do feel like they can beat anybody. And part of that is because of John Morant's leadership. So he checks off all the boxes. He does, but on to a stalwart in the NBA. James Harden made his debut for the 76ers. He was electric. He was everything that every Sixers fan hoped that he would be. And so far, the 76ers have been annihilating teams with the beard in their uniform. So do you think that with him there now and having shed his fat suit to be the James Harden of the past that it's sustainable and that makes them title favorites? Well, I, I definitely think that it's sustainable for him to produce at the very least something about 25 points a game, nine assists per game, eight rebounds per game. I think that that is completely reasonable. What I want to see is what his field goal percentage is going to be like. He has been shooting lights out since he came over his first game. He had 27 points. 12 assists, eight rebounds. He shot 58% from the field, 71% from three. Second game comes in, 29 points, 16 assists, 10 rebounds, 42% from three, 57% from the field. Also, only two turnovers in the first game, three turnovers in the second game. These are all major improvements in the areas where you want to see him and decreases in turnovers where you want to see him. So this guy honestly has seemed like a perfect fit, but I just don't think it's sustainable, obviously, for him to continue at that level of efficiency. Eventually, teams are going to start to game plan for this new duo, and I think that that will come down some, but I really do think that from a just talent and skill set standpoint, there really isn't a more ideal fit for James Harden than Joel Embiid. This really is the ideal teammate for him. There's not very much overlap in skill set for the two of them, 
James Harden gets to be the primary ball handler the way that he likes to be instead of being off the ball, which apparently James Harden, no matter what, is never going to be, a, um, you know, somebody who is going to be effective at moving off the ball because he simply doesn't want to do that, I guess. So if you want James Harden to play well, you need to put the ball in his hands. And seemingly, as long as he's feeding Embiid enough shots, Embiid doesn't mind him having the ball in his hands. Embiid has been able to thrive in his presence as well. So I think that offensively, this presents maybe the best one-two punch in the entire game from an offensive standpoint. This is going to be the biggest headache to solve for teams across the league. I think that what we need to look at now is going to be defensively how this works out. James Harden is going to be asked to be a significant defender on the perimeter for them because he shares the backcourt with Tyrese Maxey, a pretty young perimeter player himself who isn't the very largest of perimeter players. So you start a backcourt where both of your point guard and shooting guard are six, five or shorter. So against some of these larger, more athletic teams on the perimeter, it's going to be interesting to see how they can contain. They haven't really had to do that yet playing the Minnesota Timberwolves and um, the New York Knicks. So we'll see what happens when they play some of these bigger uh, perimeter players on the wings, if they get exploited or not on the defensive end. Yeah, it's it's too early for me to say that they're a, a dominant duo or, or anything of that regard. Like this to me is the honeymoon phase. You're both excited. You both just just started seeing each other and you both aren't sure about the other, but you know that you like them and you're going to show them how much you care about them. Like what's going to happen when they go on a three game losing streak? Are Embiid and Harden then going to come at each other? Are they then going to bring down the morale of the rest of the people in the room? You just don't really know until you start facing adversity. So for me, it's too early to tell whenever they went over, uh, when James Harden went over to the 76ers, every, or sorry, to the Nets, everybody's like, oh, scary hours. They only played 16 games. Their first game against the Cavaliers, they lost. They did not play the way that people thought that they were going to play, nor the amount that people thought that they were going to play for various reasons. And so I just, this team needs to face adversity first and see how they come out on the other side of hard and the other side of adversity for me to be able to say that they're in it for the long haul and that there's not going to be any issues, but from a pure paper talent perspective, Embiid is likely the most impressive and best player to mesh with Harden's skill set. When Harden went over to Houston and was so successful, it's because he had Dwight Howard in the pick and roll situation down low and creating spacing for James Harden Clint on Capella. the floor. Clint Capella as well. And so he's always thrived with a big man there with shooters around him as well who can cut. And so on the and 76ers big man can side. shoot. He's never had a big man that could space the floor before either. Exactly. Uh, besides Duran, so, obviously. So he gets a essentially a better version of Dwight Howard, who can play both ends and also shoot at the same time and distribute the ball well. And so that is a very dangerous person for him to have. In addition to that, he has Fievel and Maxi, who have shown flashes of brilliance on both ends of the floor, who can play that guard who slices and who also just carves up the defense and is able to shoot as well and will continue to improve under the tutelage of a James Harden who has found very creative ways to be offensive and be a shooter. So I think that he's in the perfect situation as opposed to where he was at before, also with a uh, 
VP or GM, whatever Daryl Morey is on the 76ers who believes in him and will find ways to put talent around him. Remember, that's the guy who traded Clint Capella to get Robert Covington to go with a small ball. So Daryl Morey will do whatever it takes to surround James Harden and probably Joel Embiid with the right talent. So he's in the perfect situation. For me, it's how does he respond to adversity? Is he going to keep his cool? Is he going to focus on the right things? And if they check all the boxes on that, then yes, it'll be a very dangerous team and it could go down as one of the better duos to have played. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. You're right. It's a little early to tell, but I will say this for 76ers fans, this two game stretch of Embiid and Harden, the impact and the games that those two players are having together in a two game stretch was probably more impressive than any two game stretch that he had on the nets with Durant or Irving in terms of both of them being able to mutually thrive at the same time. Yeah. Well, apparently the 76ers are going to go after Deandre Jordan after his exit from the Lakers. So we'll see if they can maintain that, uh, that stretch, but as if they didn't have already the better version of him and Andre Drummond, I feel bad for they traded him. They traded him. Oh, that's right. Drummond's gone. That's right. I guess they want to fill in their Drummond role again. Yeah, the 76ers just keep taking sloppy seconds from the Lakers. They got Dwight, then they took Drummond, now they're taking DeAndre. They just really like taking the centers that don't pan out. Maybe they can call Marcus All. Maybe he's I think not, Doc uh, Rivers misses LA. He, he wants does. things that remind him of home. Yeah. Even if it's uh, a player. <laughs> uh, also, regarding the MVP and most improved player, the only player to have won that award, each of them was Giannis Antetokounmpo, and he won MVP two years after winning his most improved player. So no one's ever won both in the same year, though, right? No one's ever won both in the same year, and the only person to have won both is Giannis. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. But on to our last segment, plead their case. You'll ask me a series of questions, and I will plead the case of the person or situation All right, let's get to it. So first thing on the slate, Lakers not exactly having a good time lately. They start out the second half by taking a blowout loss to the Pelicans, and the fans were letting them have it. The fans were booing them. LeBron and co. not really used to facing this kind of adversity, especially not at home. And they get into a heckling match with their own home fans plead a case for why LeBron and co are justified to argue with their own fans. So this is hard for me. I think that the, if this was, what's the verdict, I would say that the fans are completely innocent of any wrongdoing and that the Lakers are guilty of playing their worst game of basketball this season. And it's sad because each week I feel like we're talking about they're having their worst game or their worst week and it just things keep getting worse for them and so the Lakers have every right to talk back to their fans but it's not going to look good on camera like what happened and you have Trevor Ariza wanting to go fight people in the stands you have Russell Westbrook telling people to go home you have LeBron James telling people that they know nothing about basketball and those if you if you pick back each argument one by one LeBron telling people they don't know anything about basketball That's like what your five-year-old cousin would tell you when you were getting into an argument with them. You don't know anything about anything. Like what, (laughs) what if that player or person played high school basketball? What if they ran a podcast like us? Like 
just because you've never played NBA basketball doesn't mean that you don't know anything about basketball. And so I think that that's a terrible argument for anybody to have. Who knows what was being said to Trevor Ariza, but clearly the other players weren't as upset about it that as Trevor was. So if they were calling him a bum, that they shouldn't have signed him, whatever, all of those things are true. And so you wanting to go fight them is just like when a bully is picking on you, you're going to give them the validation of them being right by getting super offended by what they said and trying to give them any praise and attention by validating their claims in your anger. And then Russell being like telling people to go home is just very dismissive. And those people paid a ton of money, so they don't want to go home. They actually wanted to be there for a potential buzzer beater or for the Lakers blowout because they paid money to see their team win. And you guys couldn't put that on the floor. And so telling people to go home is dissing the fans that showed up to care about you in the game that paid thousands of dollars to sit in the seats that they were at to see one of the worst displays of offense, defense, and overall game performance by any team as of late. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think what's funny is that throughout all this struggle, LeBron James is still staying out there scoring 25 plus points a game because it's almost like for him, he's already mailed it in this season. It's almost like he knows like, yeah, I'm definitely not going to win a ring this year, but you know what? Maybe I can catch Kareem. Let me just keep chasing Kareem. All right. I'm going to go get my 25. I'm going to stat pad. I'm going to get my garbage points, regardless of if we're winning by one, getting blown out by 10. I'm going to go out there and chase my individual accolades. That's what I'm playing for this year, because let's be real. We're not going to win a championship. And it seems like that is what they look like when they're all out there. And it's just getting worse and worse at this point. We have to wonder, like, are they even going to make the play in tournament? Like they just lost to the team that's right behind them, um, chasing them to get into that tournament. And at this point, LeBron James probably is acting this way because he's never really dealt with this level of hatred from his own fans. I mean, yes, they did burn his jersey in Cleveland, but when they did that, he had already left. I don't think that he has ever experienced his current fans turning on him the way they have. He's King James, after all. But I just think that um, the king of tweets probably still, at this point, one tweet that he wrote that has never aged better I read it for all of you, the tweet of the year for LeBron James. Keep talking about my squad, our personnel ages, the way he plays, he stays injured, we're past our time in this league, et cetera, et cetera. Do me one favor, please, exclamations. And I mean, please, exclamations. Keep that same narrative energy when it begins. That's all I ask. LeBron James, I ask you, when is it going to begin? This is the worst tweet of all time. All right, but moving on to our next one, J.J. Redick calls out Zion Williamson as being a detached teammate. He says that that was the case when he was with the Pelicans too, and that what he's seeing today from him is no different than what he's always seen. And basically he's criticizing him for not having reached out to C.J. McCollum since his acquisition plead Zion's case for why he is not a detached teammate. I can't. I wouldn't take this case if I was a lawyer. And I think he was rehabbing in New York and hasn't been with the team with his foot injury. Things have only gotten worse as the season has gone on. He was about to come back, then couldn't come back, then got re-injured the foot, needed another surgery, 
And if the recent reports are true that he hasn't talked to CJ McCollum, then JJ's right. And JJ went over to New Orleans, I think, trying to do what he did with Philly and help a young team grow. And immediately was turned off by David Griffin and likely the effort that he saw from that team. If you've listened to JJ Redick talk about the Stan Van days, he's always been a grinder. And when you think about with Jimmy Butler, when he's had his conversations with him, Jimmy and him were of the same mentality. And so for him to go to that team and likely see what was somebody who everybody thought was a star who is detached, who's not really uh, like his head's not in the game. Um, I, I think that JJ's words hold weight and it's hard for anybody really to defend Zion at the moment, especially when these reports come out and you hear crickets from Zion and his team. Yeah, I agree. And JJ Reddick isn't someone in the media who's just calling him out from the outside looking in. This is somebody who shared a locker room with him. So for him to be a former teammate and say this adds that much more weight. And it's funny that we're talking about adding weight in a Zion Williamson conversation, but it's true. I mean, you're not just another player on the team that's rehabbing. You are the player on the team. Like you're the franchise player. So I think that it would be on you as a franchise cornerstone and leader to at least reach out to a new teammate who is someone that is a all-star level player that potentially is someone that you're going to be sharing the floor with and having to build chemistry with if you want to see any kind of success on this franchise. So the fact that you haven't even reached out to him, that shows poor leadership. So I agree, Zion's got to do better. I don't know that Zion Williamson wants to stay in New Orleans, and I don't know um, how likely that is going to be, given that now the fans are seemingly turning on him too. Recently, reports came out of a parade where there was a Zion Williamson float with several uh, pretty offensive remarks on it saying, oh, I weigh one ton, making fun of his number one, one ton, saying I am hungry um, and set back on the float. So I'm sure Zion Williamson saw that. I'm sure it doesn't make him feel good about being in New Orleans, but he obviously at this point hasn't really shown much dedication to the city either. So maybe a fresh start is in order for him, or maybe he's just destined to be the next Greg Oden. We'll see. Only time can tell. But moving on to another big man, Bam Adebayo over his last 10 games is averaging 1.6 blocks and 1.7 steals per game, showing dominance on the inside and on the outside. If he were to average that for the rest of the year, he would be the only player in the league right now to do that. Plead his case for why he should be considered for defensive player of the year. Thanks for what you just said. He would be the only player in the league to do that. And so you usually see guards who get steals or big men who get blocks. And you haven't had many players, if any, who have been known to do it on both ends. Um, and I think Dwayne Wade was known for his uh, blocking ability as a smaller guard. And we've talked about the big men adapting to guard traits. And so Bam Adebayo clearly is picking up on something that guards and smaller forwards are good at, like Jimmy Butler, who always gets his cookies. So I think that the only thing going against Bam is he did miss those four to six weeks with that uh, tear. So I think that that's the worst part for him in terms of making that argument versus the likely winner, which will be Rudy Gobert 
for I don't even know how many times now. Um, but Bam Adebayo, it's still an impressive season overall and still him building towards becoming finally the defensive player of the year. But I think he's going to have a hard time convincing people over Rudy Gobert, who is averaging 2.3 blocks per game and is right now uh, six in the NBA and PER and has only missed a couple of games as opposed to Bam's probably 10 or so. Yeah, I have to agree with you. What Bam is doing is incredible. He obviously, as Tyler Hero said, has the potential to be a generational talent based on his unique skill set. And even though I personally think that Bam Adebayo is actually a more impactful defender today than Rudy Gobert, I really do feel that. Like Rudy Gobert is very great at locking down the paint, but he is not going to be able to do what Bam Adebayo does where he can switch and defend literally any position, one through five. It doesn't matter who your best player is. You can put him out there. You can put him on him, and he can defend. He also is a guy that can erase other people's mistakes. Jimmy Butler and a lot of these other guys in the Heat are able to be aggressive in the passing lanes and go for steals because they know that if they leave their guy, Bam is so great at switching over and recovering and being a weak side help defender that they can afford to do that and probably still not have to worry about giving up an easy layup or an easy open shot. That's something that Rudy Gobert cannot do. Now, one thing is actually being skilled and making an impact on the court, and the other thing is actually winning the award. I do think that Rudy Gobert is probably going to end up winning it just because it seems like this award always goes to a player that is averaging over two blocks a game or two steals a game. And Bam Adebayo, with all the time that he missed, he'd have to basically play at this level for the rest of the year in order to come and crack into this conversation. It obviously would be pretty tough to sustain a rate like this, but if he could, he could get some votes. I just think that for Bam Adebayo, um, he has a defensive player of the year in his future. It's just not going to be right now because right now he's still in the phase of his career where he's being underrated because a lot of the impact that he has doesn't always show up on the stat sheet. Even though he's putting up some stats, I think that his impact defensively goes even beyond the numbers that he's putting up. And I actually think that even though Rudy Gobert gets more blocks per game, I would bet that Bam Adebayo probably has a higher number of contested shots per game and probably affects more misses than Rudy Gobert does on a game-to-game basis. Yeah, well, we'll have to see if Bam can stay healthy and continue to show his dominance. But that's it. That's the show. Like us, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. Also, uh, follow us on all of your social media channels. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned. Court, court of opinion.